The United States Supreme Court heard oral arguments in June Medical Services versus Russo in March 2020, which at heart concerns Louisiana's ability to ensure health and safety protections at all medical facilities. Of course, abortion businesses have always been allergic to any health and safety regulation, despite women routinely ending up in the emergency room or worse after being subjected to allegedly routine abortion procedures. But at the end of the day, I think Americans would regard it as just plain common sense that if a hospital or dentist has to meet basic health and safety standards, an abortion clinic should too. While so much attention, as oral arguments took place, rightly focused on the justices and their attitudes on our high court, and advocates who argued in court that day, like Louisiana's heroic Solicitor General Liz Merrill, who defended the life-saving law, the story of how the Louisiana law in question, known as the Unsafe Abortion Protection Act, even got to the court in the first place, remains an important one. We've spoken in the past with Louisiana State Senators Katrina Jackson and Regina Barrow, two heroic lawmakers who sponsored the bill. And today we speak with two great leaders from Louisiana Right to Life, Ben Clapper, Executive Director, and Alex Sagers, Director of Education. Ben and Alex walk us through Louisiana's road to the Supreme Court, their work to protect life across the spectrum, and Louisiana's shining example to the entire nation of bipartisanship in upholding the human right to life. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. Thrilled to be joined today by Ben Clapper and Alex Sagers. How you both doing? Doing great. How about y'all? We're doing well. And we've also got Noah Brandt here. Hey, guys. Good to be with you, Tom, Alex, Ben. Uh, you guys are heroes. You know, Louisiana is doing amazing things, and I can't get enough of talking to the, the Louisiana people. You guys are just doing such a great job. <laughs> and it's not an understatement to say that you are leading the whole country. So I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you. We're excited to be on the show. So, yeah, it seems like just yesterday we were all out together at the Protect Women, Protect Life rally in front of the U.S. Supreme Court in Washington, D.C. But it wasn't just yesterday. It was a long time ago now. What have you guys been up to in Louisiana with Louisiana Right to Life in the meantime? Well, it has been a long time, and I remember being in the Supreme Court uh, chamber for oral arguments, and they, you know, squish you in there as tight as you could possibly. It was like a, I'm sure, a hotbed of coronavirus <laughs> swapping in that chamber that day, and also with the rally out front with everyone being stuffed in there. So it does seem like a long time ago, and it's hard to believe we're getting closer and closer to the decision. But you know, just like everyone I know, we've been hunkered down here and continuing the work of uh, our organization and the pro-life cause from home and online and through digital media. So, but uh, I think we're coming through stronger and better than ever. So we're excited about what the future holds. Yeah. I was just rewatching um, the videos from the rally and just how awesome it was to hear all of those people. And, and I'm looking forward to putting a lot of that footage together and gearing up for the decision but yeah, the last couple of months have been uh, helping, you know, with my one-year-old daughter climbing all over me. <laughs> I've been trying to watch those videos and she's pressing buttons. So uh, it, it's been fun. That's what's awesome. it like, Alex? What's it like, Alex, uh, working from home with a little, a little baby like that? Is it, I'm sure it's a lot of fun, but it, talk about the challenges and how you get through it. Oh, yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure Ben's been on the phone with me while I have Disney sing-along songs in the background. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I was so determined to not have screen time with my one-year-old, but this has made that happen. <laughs> but not a whole lot, you know, just working around her schedule. And, of course, she helps keep me grounded in why I'm pro-life. So that's been beautiful. That's been one of the big silver linings to this whole pandemic experience, right, is that uh, it's, it's put so many of us back in touch with our families uh, and family life in a way that definitely could not have anticipated earlier in the year. Absolutely. So we'll talk more about Louisiana Right to Life in a few minutes, but I guess first let's talk about this case, why we were out in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, why the rally happened, what this case is about. So, Ben, Alex, can you just kind of walk us through, you know, uh, the law um, that, that took Louisiana to the Supreme Court, why it matters? 
Yeah, well, you know, we the law we introduced in the legislative session in 2014, so and that really seems like a long time ago now. Uh, I mean, six years ago is when we uh, first met with Senator Katrina, then Representative Katrina Jackson, and asked her to author this bill and to bring it forward. You know, uh, it began in, in, for us the determination or the realization that in Louisiana, every outpatient surgical facility other than abortion, those physicians there have to have surgical privileges at a local hospital. And so we just started with a basic question. Why in the world do abortion facilities get this giant loophole, right? Uh, I mean, they're doing similar outpatient surgeries. They're all invasive surgeries. And so we just began with that question. Why are they getting some sort of exemption from this? They're separated out. We also had heard the testimony of women who've been hurt by abortion and I've uh, seen what these abortion facilities had done in Louisiana, kind of the, uh, especially like the Baton Rouge abortion facility, Delta Clinic for women. It's uh, it's just a, a house of horrors for all the violations they've had over really decades of activity. And uh, we knew that these abortion facilities were not uh, holding themselves to the standards. And so the state had to be the entity that kind of was the quality control and had to make sure that these standards were put in place and so that's that's kind of what we went to Senator Jackson, Representative Jackson, with was that message that, you know, there's no reason that these facilities who say they are, you know, they're patient centered, they say that they're there for women, they say that they give quality care. Well, if that's the case, then let them play at the same playing field as everyone else in the state. So that kind of began the process, and that was our first time working with Representative Jackson as an author of our legislation. Uh, which we had met her a couple years before, uh, kind of, you know, she's a uh, kind of a bulldog, a kind of a, a fighter, if you haven't met her. And we found that out the hard way when we first were in committee with her as a new legislator. She was grilling us on a pro-life bill, <laughs> and uh, we had never met her before, and we left the committee thinking, goodness gracious, we're going to have to deal with this woman for years. And then she comes up to us and says, hey, I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm pro-life. I'm, I'm supporting you. And I'm saying, we're like, well... Yeah, I don't think you're supporting <laughs> us in this process, but I guess that's our way of testing our friends. But that was a, a great start of an awesome working relationship. Senator Jackson really forcefully and uh, effectively took that legislation through the process. You know, in the committee process, we had not only women who had been hurt by abortion, had been had complications from abortion, not just mental or emotional, which are very important, but these were physical complications. We also had emergency room physicians talking to us about how when uh, they would be working in the ER, a patient would come in who had complications from an abortion, yet they didn't come in with uh, any, any information from the physician who did the abortion, right? They had to reassess the problem and basically start with scratch to understand what was happening. And they said, these ER doctors, you know, with long careers said, absolutely, this is common sense. Uh, for us to even get insurance as a doctor, we have to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. So it, it, it really, you know, for us, it kind of was common sense, you know. It's, it's obviously been blown up in the media because it's all about access to abortion and whether this is going to close abortion facilities down. But, uh, you know, all I know is in Louisiana, if there's another outpatient surgical facility and they can't get privileges, there wouldn't be a controversy about whether they were staying open or closed. That's the law. And that's how it's put in place. So that's how it all started, passed the legislature in 2014, signed by then Governor Bobby Jindal. And then since then, six years of court proceedings, you know, up through the district to the Fifth Circuit, thought we were going to the Supreme Court. Then the Texas decision came down, sent us back to the district court, back up to the Fifth Circuit, then finally to the Supreme Court years later. So. Uh, you know, it's funny, even a lot of the legislators that are still in the Capitol, or, or many of the legislators are new, they don't even remember the law. And we, uh, when we were doing, I think you guys had the brief with former legislators, or maybe that was ADF, we had to go track down a bunch of former legislators that we don't keep in touch. They're off, you know, back home at their businesses and stuff saying, hey, you got to, you're, you're a former legislator. I know it was six years ago, but you got to sign this brief. So it, it's been <laughs> a their crawfish boils and, and eating right. beignets like retired Louisiana folks do, right? That's right. Absolutely. So they, uh, we had to go hunt them down and find them. They probably were all hunting, uh, actually. So 
but uh, it, it's been a it's been a great journey, and one that we certainly hope is going to end in a victory. Uh, you know, however that victory looks, you know, uh, we'll, we'll see here coming soon. But it would certainly be a sweet end to this if if we can actually have this law be put in place. And it's it's so sad and ugly the way that we've had such opposition all of these years that has dragged it out so long, especially, you know, like as a woman being interviewed in this, you know, I'm constantly saying this law was made by women, you know, with representative Katrina Jackson, and others in our office, plus them, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For women. And, you know, when people say, um, yeah, this is just about controlling women, you know, whatever, whatever. I'm like, well, look, this is a blinding spotlight on the ugliness that pervades these clinics, on the danger that's within the abortion industry. And it's so sad that we cannot see eye to eye at all on this. You know, I consider myself a feminist and I know that feminists are often on the pro-choice side. And I'm like, look, we should be on the same page as this. We should be both wanting to protect women if this is something that's going to be legal. So that that kind of conversation has been amazing. Alex, how do you respond? Ben brought this up a little bit, right? What do the abortion proponents say when they're arguing against this? They, they scream one word, but they yell it over and over and over again, which is access, that access, access, access. That's all that's important. Will this law reduce access? How do we increase access? But the one word they never mention is safety, right? Mm-hmm. What does access matter if there's no safety? And if these women are getting these, even if they think the procedure is, is great and important and a virtue to them, if they're leaving the, the hospital, leaving the clinic scarred or worse, dead, then access doesn't matter, right? Right. Um, I said to somebody, I'm pretty sure, pretty sure in every other health issue that we talk about, there is never that emphasis of access over safety because we all know that industries can take advantage of people going to them, that people can easily become victims within systems. And that's amazing that they're allowing these women to just be at the hands of, you know, the system in this country for the sake of access. And I guess it's because they're afraid, you know, they're afraid they look at these women and they're afraid that they're just going to not be able to have abortion, um, you know, regardless of the circumstance that they're in. And I get that. And I really get that. And that's a conversation that we need to have. But I say that's also the reason why we need to be discussing regulations and safety if this is something that's going to continue. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, that safe, legal, rare language that so kind of typified the abortion oh, debate in yeah. the 90s, right? Yeah, it's gone. I mean, it's, it's, and that's the, that's the crazy thing. It's, it, for a while, you know, it became, it went from safe, legal, and rare to safe and legal. And now it's just legal. Yes. Legal, legal, legal and frequent. I think is what they want now, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, it's that access question, right? And it's and it right. gets and I think of that with any other, you know, business. You know, you mentioned uh, that the Louisiana law really tried to level that playing field, and so it was saying, why is there this carve out? Why is there a sort of a special exception for one particular uh, industry? Let's say. Yeah. Um, well, not only Tom, not only that, but the fact that it's the Supreme Court that protects that industry. You know, I mean, uh, what other medical procedure gets the protection from the highest court in America? I mean, none, you know, Uh, the Supreme Court should be looking at it just like any other surgical procedure. I mean, this if if this question was on endoscopies and uh, and and many privileges, it would never. I mean, a district judge would throw it out in a heartbeat, you know. Uh, But, you know, because the Supreme Court got in the business of protecting the abortion industry and declaring it as a right, uh, that put us in this situation now where the Supreme Court and I think courts all over America are just they're kind of wrapped up in themselves when it comes to abortion and all of these matters associated with it, because there's uh, they created the problem and now they're trying to figure out how to deal with it. And they've created so many inconsistencies and stopgap measures. And, uh, you know, it's just unfortunate. And look, the abortion industry is in a tough spot, right? I mean, they, uh, their physicians, not many physicians want to be in the business of ending the life of a human being. I mean, that's just a fact of the matter. Now they're going to say it's all because of, you know, being pressured or, or whatever from the outside. But, there's less and less physicians that want to do this, and often the physicians that want to do this 
are those physicians at the bottom of the medical barrel that don't want that, that may have problems for a whole sort of reasons to get admitting privileges. So, I mean, they need the court to carve out for them this protection. Uh, and and we're saying it shouldn't happen that way. That the that if if admitting privileges are a priority elsewhere, it should be a priority here. That's right. Yeah, it's a simple thing. You know, you look at the just the recent history of of some of the worst abuses, some of the worst failures um, of not just abortion practitioners, um, but also the state authorities that are supposed to be regulating them precisely to protect their citizens. You, know, you think of this uh, in the case of, of like a Kermit Gosnell in Philadelphia or an Ulrich Klopfer um, in Il- Illinois and Indiana. Um, these are guys, you know, in general, you know, Steve, Steve Aiden and Clark Forsyth have made the point at American Center for Life that some of the worst practitioners of abortion were guys who were doing abortions back before Roe. So in a certain sense, you know, Roe essentially legalized the back alley. For these practitioners, these were people who were doing unsafe abortions before 1973 and continue to do unsafe abortions after 1973 to the point where we saw with Klopfer with you know, a guy literally hoarding human remains in his garage, uh, in his car, um, you know, just bizarre stuff. And so we say, why wouldn't we want a state to to regulate? Right. It's like I would want that with a restaurant down the street. If you're going to have some debate with me about, don't you want more access uh, to to you know local restaurants? It's like my first question would be, is the food good, you know? And in this case, it's like we're not even asking this question of are, are these good things that we're accessing. So I think it's a it's critical work that you guys are doing, um, just on highlighting these things. And uh, I'm curious to hear, I guess, given that you were involved in this for so many years, you see kind of that path, right? That six plus year path from the introduction of this to the Supreme Court debate. I think of like the old uh, Schoolhouse Rock, right? Like I'm just a bill sitting up here on Capitol Hill. Is, yeah. It feels like it's been a long time, right? But in another way, is this pretty normal for, for something like this to be dealt with? Is it a six-year process long, short, in comparison to other well, things? I, I think this process has been a little longer than normal because the Texas Supreme Court case, Hellerstadt, was in the middle. And so it, it kind of doubled the time. Frame. I also think federal judges in Louisiana are the slowest and they do the least amount of daily work at any profession in America. They just, uh, I mean, if you look at the Texas, throwing some shade at lawyers, I like it. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you look at the Texas cases and how fast they move through federal court, uh, I mean, it, like our dismemberment law was passed before Texas's and they're in the Fifth Circuit, and we're still in district court. You know, it, it, I don't know what's the deal or what, what slows things down, but I would say that things move a little slower down here, and the Texas decision being in the middle of this kind of doubled that timeline. So I think it's been a special. But I tell you what, we were, hindsight being 2020, we've been grateful that the extra time that this has lingered on because it allowed President Trump to put new justices on the court that could, you know, that could change the outcome for this. So uh, it, it's been it's been helpful the additional time and and really give credit to Louisiana's Attorney General's office, um, Jeff Landry, our Attorney General, and Liz Merle, Solicitor General, who really just stayed with it. You know, after Hellerstadt in 2016, a lot of other states backed off the defense of their admitting privilege law. And uh, Jeff Landry and Liz said, Louisiana's law is different. It is unique. The impact is unique. And Hellerstadt, while it was certainly strong on the pro-abortion side, it wasn't a a slam dunk, right? It didn't shut the door. It was very specific to Texas and the situation on the ground. And so kudos to Louisiana's Attorney General's office for sticking with it and bringing it to the Supreme Court and who knows what can happen here in a couple of weeks. We'll keep tracking it. Yeah, we expect in most cases for these decisions to come down around the June time frame. And I know with the virus, uh, with the pandemic, we're not really sure how that might uh, delay things on the court. Um, but we're going to continue following that and, and we'll keep that conversation going. Let's shift gears to Louisiana right to life itself. I got a bone to pick with you guys. You guys actually beat us here at American Center for Life. I saw you are founded in 1970. That's right. Yeah, it's a rare, rare pro-life group that that, that beats Americans United for Life. So props to you. 
Yeah, well, our founder, Bob Wynn, who's still on our board of directors, that he was a young attorney in New Orleans and uh, saw kind of the decision coming through the courts and, and then was on that kind of original group that helped uh, formulate National Right to Life and then founded New Orleans and Louisiana Rights of Life at the same time and kind of spread from there. So, yeah, hard to believe, uh, 1970. I know some of our board members uh, joined on in 1973, right after Roe v. Wade, and they would they, they tell us, you know, we better get involved now because in five years this still could be going on, you know, and here we are, wow. you know, decades mm-hmm. later. Yeah, it's, a, it was, it's definitely a dedicated group of people that didn't wait to take action. It's incredible. You know, we have uh, our own, one of our founding members, Dennis Horan. Uh, we did an episode, we did an episode last year on life, liberty, and law where we brought a lecture Dennis gave back in Chicago in the early 1970s. And he was speaking kind of with the same attitude. You know, he said, uh, you know, Alan Guttmacher had been kind of at it from his perspective since the 1930s. And so, you know, he was kind of cautioning, depending on how things go in the courts, pro-lifers may have to be at this for many decades as well. And, uh, and so I think there's that kind of shared, that shared feeling that this is in some senses, not just an inter- intergenerational fight, um, but that it's really a perpetual fight, right? The human right to life, we litigate it in every generation, in every culture, in different ways. Um, right. But it's, it's always a fight that's here because it's, it's a fight actually that comes from the human heart, right? It's, it's, it's with each of us. We have to kind of answer that in our own conscience before we can answer it in policy. Let's step back for a minute. Louisiana Right to Life, you mentioned National Right to Life. Tell us about the relationship, because there are Right to Life chapters all over the country, but for folks who aren't familiar, what's the relationship there, and what are you trying to do on the state level that maybe other groups can't do? Yeah, well, we're an affiliate of National Right to Life, uh, which there's 50, you know, 50 affiliates of National Right to Life, and so uh, that, uh, that means that we work together and closely with National Right to Life, especially on policy matters and legislation and obviously work with you guys as well uh, on that. But, uh, you know, our mission is to uh, both to educate, activate, legislate, and ensure the policy to defend uh, the right to life. You know, certainly abortion, infanticide, euthanasia, assisted suicide, you know, those are our key issues. You know, embryonic stem cell research over the past decade, you know, certainly been in that, not, not last decade now, last two decades, really. So, uh, you know, those uh, we stay, you know, we believe it's important for the pro-life cause to stay focused on the destruction of innocent human life. You know, there are many worthy issues in our country uh, for people to take action on and, and many causes that are important. But, you know, we thread that needle and say that we want to protect the human being, the innocent human being whose life is being destroyed. Uh, and they've played no part in it, no role in it in any way, just because of where they are in their life, because their vulnerable situation, uh, you know, they're being destroyed. And and so that's our, our organization focuses a lot on educating, obviously on passing legislation, on electing pro-life candidates, uh, also supporting pregnancy centers and, and doing the service side of the movement as best we can. In fact, we uh, just had uh, during the pandemic, we in our New Orleans office just gave out about 30,000 diapers and cans wow. of formula and wipes and everything to families who were struggling. You were on the ground for that. Yeah. Um, it was crazy. You know, whenever we were reflecting on things and talking to the media about it, um, it's insane for me to think about moms in their, like in their cars with their kids waiting for two to three hours just for one pack of diapers so we were definitely like answering a need here. And it was just, it was beautiful to see the whole pro-life community here, you know, donate to this, give to this. And we were able to supply so much stuff. At the same time, it was really tragic, you know, to see how much we, we can only do so much with our limited resources, but we're happy to be there to try to help um, these women, you know, with what we can. Both, it was both mamas who were pregnant and soon, you know, to have kids. And also we were supplying diapers up through size seven as well. Yeah, you know, and so, but mainly, you know, the service side of the movement is in the pregnancy help centers, you know, in the state that we support in various ways. Uh, We do a lot of things focused on the youth, you know, obviously kind of what gets the attention is the legislative and policy related things. But 
our youth efforts, which is where Alex, uh, you know, began in our organization as a youth director and attending our camp program way, way back in the yeah. day. At when, when I was in high school, those pictures are very awkward. <laughs> <laughs> you, you guys literally do like a, like a summer camp? Yeah. Okay. So this is something that we're very proud of as Losing Right to Life that we really hope to see other states be able to do because we know that the culture starts with, you know, the culture change starts with the youth and you can do legislation and that's wonderful, but you're only going to prolong, you know, your state's ability to be solidly pro-life if you've got a whole generation to back it up. So um, we uh, have a summer camp you know, um, that's uh, Pulse Leadership Institute. Our whole program is called Pulse. We also have weekend camps throughout the state at different times of the year. Um, So that's kind of on our programs that side. We also have Pulse teams where students who've gone to these camps or who are part of the pro-life clubs just want to, you know, get involved, do more. We offer a meal, we get them to come and they hang out. It's kind of like mini youth group, pro-life youth group. Um, and they end up becoming the people who, you know, volunteer a lot for us, uh, help run the camps and then go on to run their own pro-life clubs on their high school and college campuses. So that's on our side. And then we go into the schools with presentations. I'm not even having the number on top of my head, but I did what. 60 presentations a year for three years, so however much that is. And that's in public schools? Um, mostly Christian and Catholic schools and sure. some public schools. Of course, in Louisiana, we have a lot. The, the main thing here in New Orleans is Catholic schools. People from everywhere go to Catholic schools. You know, it's just their culture here. And so I think still, even in us talking in those Christian and Catholic schools, we're reaching this, uh, a huge demographic of people. Um, so we do a 100%. lot of yeah, well, because the the other side, right? I mean, they're they're talking to kids, like they're talking to kids nonstop. And yeah. even if you even if you don't want to think about like official, you know, what might be happening in a a public school sex education class, you just look at right. Like I think of that story from a few weeks ago of these two influencers on TikTok. Did you hear the story of the girl saying, you know, oh, I have a positive pregnancy test. Looks like I'm going in yeah. for my second abortion, and they are just laughing like it is the funniest thing they've heard all year. Yeah. And they're dead serious, right? So they're not doing any education there. But what they are doing is they're indoctrinating. They're saying that when you get pregnant, you get an abortion, right? And it's it's not bad. It's honestly hilarious, and it might be something to brag about. So yeah. I, I think that getting sort of getting in there and offering an alternative is uh, is something that we don't do enough of. It's true. They've completely normalized it among our youth. And so even even in some of the most Catholic schools that I've talked to, there's a lot of students with a lot of questions. And we really get into it, not in a sort of debate kind of way, but I help open up the conversation compassionately. And it really it really changes minds and hearts. And we've gotten thank you notes from teachers and students themselves who've said, like, you've given me something to think about. Um, so that's been awesome to see. And we, we want to continue that. Do you find, you know, as we're talking about this, I'm thinking of, uh, of just the, the nuance and the complexity that so many people face, especially when they have an unplanned pregnancy, um, trying to navigate that situation, right? And for a long time, it was pro-life Americans who were, you know, um, caricatured falsely as sort of not caring about that complexity, right? Um, but now it does seem like we've shifted to this, this, this realm where, you know, like we've spoken with uh, attorney Josh Craddock on the program um, from his perspective, he's written about how the kind of pro-abortion movement has shifted to kind of a, a slavery era, John Calhoun, you know, abortion is a positive good, right? In the way that Calhoun tried to justify slavery, he said it's not just an economic thing that happens that's kind of morally this or that. It's a really good thing. And it seems like we've done that with abortion, right? Where, where pro-abortion folks, pro-choice folks are, have generally kind of ejected from the conversation from the public consciousness that there is even complexity, right? Because even the people who are conflicted about it, like for instance, women like Catherine Glenn Foster, our president here at America's Island for Life, who've experienced abortion, regret it, healed from it, they're sort of told, you know, you don't get to talk. You go sit over there. Uh, and so I'm just kind of curious about that. Have you seen that kind of on the ground in the educational efforts? Um, of people being silenced about? Yeah. Yeah. Tom, you know, I think anytime these are dealing with issues that affect people's personal life, people are going to be inclined to be hesitant to speak, right? I mean, yeah. it's, 
it's hard to talk about this because it, there's people, I mean, there's what, almost a million abortions every year, right? So that's a lot of people that have abortions, you know? So getting someone to be bold enough and strong enough to talk about it, that in and of itself, even without feeling from uh, pro-abortion people that, that people should be silenced, you know, it's hard enough, you know, speaking about this, much less to feel that uh, you're being silenced or told that you can't talk about it or, or that, that you shouldn't be discussing this. And that is the case for guys, too, right? I mean, you just get this feeling that you're not supposed to talk about it. And so almost like for men, there's a it's almost like there's an excuse for people that don't want to talk about it and say, well, I'm not a guy. I'm not supposed to talk about it. So it's like they don't even make their minds up about the situation. You know, so, so even if they get into the situation where they've gotten someone pregnant, the, they, their response is, hey, well, baby, it's your decision. You know, mm -hmm. so it, it, it's all across the board silencing people from being against the orthodoxy of abortion and then also silencing men from taking responsibility to be there for those that they care for. And that's a natural yeah. impulse, right? I mean, guys, especially, I think girls, especially, they want to be in a place. I mean, how often have you heard the story, right? Um, I'm thinking of, of somebody I was speaking to just recently who shared getting a, a pregnant unexpectedly, going to their parents and expecting their parents to help. And the help was, well, we'll pay for the abortion, you know, and fortunately they made the choice for life and, and the outcome was a positive and, and a good life affirming one. But it's like, you know, we need, we need to talk about those good life-affirming paths. Yeah, and oftentimes, I mean, I, I'm trying to think, have I ever heard the situation where that parent wanted to pay for the abortion or was unhappy about the pregnancy, but yet if the person still chose life, that parent still doesn't want that child around. I mean, uh, I've heard so many situations where the parents are like, thank goodness they chose life. You know, now I have my grandchild. That's right. Whatever, you know? So, I mean... It, it rarely ever goes the other way, right? I mean, once life is there, uh, and it's rarely ever like, man, maybe I should have had an abortion in this situation, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas it goes the opposite way a lot, where there's people who are saying, I wish I hadn't had the abortion, you know? So it's that perspective that is needed in the situation. That's right. Ben, Louisiana is like... Uh, I would say one of the only states in the union, unfortunately, but we're on the road to changing that. But right now, one of the only states where life is truly bipartisan. You know, it's not it's not just you have a few token members of, of the other party uh, supporting pro-life laws. In Louisiana, it's like really a majority of both parties. It almost seems like a consensus issue. And when I think of national political issues, there's almost like no issues that are consensus issue. You know what I mean? Like, like, the, like the, the lightest thing you could say, the incentive structure is just for the other party to reflexively oppose what masks or no masks. Doing. Yeah. Yeah. Masks or yeah. no masks. You know, it's like we're we're free trade until they're free trade. Now we're anti trade. Like it's, it's it doesn't matter. There's no actual basis for believing it. Right. But in Louisiana, it seems like that's not true. It seems like Democrats are pro-life and Republicans are pro-life. And a lot of people in the middle are pro-life. Tell us about that. How is that even possible? Yeah, well, even in Louisiana, more and more Democrats and Republicans are disagreeing on more and more things. You know, the, the message every campaign cycle in Louisiana is, you know, let's not make Louisiana like D.C. You know, let's keep it bipartisan. Or And then starts someone say, well, this group is making it. This group is making it less bipartisan. But the pro-life issue certainly has been an issue that has been mostly a consensus. Look, we still have a lot of people that support abortion, and we have a lot of people that will only kind of in name only support life. Uh, and oftentimes, the most difficult thing is, is uh, you know, differentiating between those who, you know, are going to be with you when the bullets are flying uh, versus those who, when it, when the going gets tough, is going to pull out, you know, who are going to, Leave that's, the situation. that's a good point, but I just want to, just for our listeners, as somebody from the outside, right? You're in Louisiana, so my, so who knows how it looks to you? But from the outside, yeah. we, right. you, you, like, just with this long question, right? You have an extremely pro-life, life-affirming law that is sponsored by two Democrats. Yeah, absolutely. Two, two African-American female Democrats, passed mm -hmm. in both houses overwhelmingly by Republicans and Democrats, signed by a Republican governor and then defended by a Democratic governor and then defended in court by a Republican attorney general. Like, it's it's flabbergasting. Yeah, it's it's awesome. We're definitely a model for the rest of the country. And 
Uh, you know, certainly when the Obamacare debate, you know, we lost a lot of those pro-life Democrats in Congress. That was really the end of the pro-life Democrat in Congress. And then with Lipinski's, you know, loss, that is aggravated even further. You know, yeah, Louisiana really is a uh, a model for the country in that we're so proud of Senator Jackson, Senator Barrow, so many others, you know. I, I tell you, this uh, uh, Representative Bernard Labaugh from Ville Platte, Louisiana, where Alex's family is from, yeah. he was a rural Democratic uh, a pharmacist from Ville Platte in the heart of Cajun country. Uh, that man wore his precious feet pinned to the Capitol every single day for 12 years. He's been termed out now. But, I mean, he, I would say he was more pro-life or just as pro-life as anybody else in that building. I mean, that man just cared deeply. Now, he also cared deeply about a whole host of other Democratic issues. But, uh, you know, we could trust him in the foxhole, you know, on these issues. And you kind of even forgot. And when you're in the Capitol, oftentimes you forget who's pro-life. I mean, who's Republican and Democrat. Sometimes I have to check because uh, it starts to run in through it. You start, start kind of getting jammed into other issues and you got to stop and think, okay, wait, where, who's who's who in this situation? You know, so it's uh, it's really an awesome uh, thing. You know, certainly our governor has signed a lot of pro-life legislation. He's a Democrat, Democrat Governor John Bell Edwards. So that's awesome. So, yeah, it's definitely a great uh, model for the nation and something that we hope spreads and grows. But I, I really think it comes from our people. You know, I mean, it's it's because our people are pro-life across the state. And that's why. We have a bipartisan. I mean, I wish I could say it's some secret trick that we've done. <laughs> One weird we, trick, yeah. We, we've got great pro-life people in the state, and that's that's where it begins. Wouldn't you think that? I think so. It's a principle that's really ingrained in our culture here in Louisiana. Yeah, I do wish we could say it was something else, but um, but that definitely helps the language be focused, you know, on what really matters when it comes to that pro-life discussion. It's it's inspiring to see um, Katrina Jackson and Mike Johnson standing together on stage, you know, talking about these issues. And they're all so they're so nice to each other when we're talking about these issues, you know. Well, even Jeff Landry, our attorney general and Katrina Jackson. I mean, Jeff is about as conservative as you can get. Yes. And Katrina, other than on social issues, is about as liberal as you can get and uh, and they are like best buds, and it's because of this issue. Now they're still going to go to the go to fight on other issues. You know, I would say some of in my time uh, with Louisiana Rights Life, some of my greatest memories are when we passed the 2014 law. Katrina Jackson on the House floor invited all the legislators to come up to the podium with her, who were co-sponsors of the bill, and it was amazing. It was you know what there's 104 members in the House. There was definitely 75 legislators. Standing up there behind her, that's incredible. All uh, you know, black, white, uh, male, female. You know, it was really just a powerful image and her ability to really unite them together. And you know, we all even had a little bit of flack from some Republicans who didn't want us yeah. to have Democratic offices still. <laughs> but I think now they've kind of warmed up to the fact and seen that the value of this being bipartisan. And now, when you see Katrina Jackson speaking all over the country uh, as a leader, it, it was definitely an awesome thing. Yeah, it can prove that while people have different ideas for solutions to the problem, they can still agree on the problem and work on that together. And think about the opportunities too, right? It's like, I think of, you know, you mentioned uh, just the service that you guys have been doing through Louisiana Right to Life in the pandemic, you know, whether that's distributing diapers or other needed materials. And I think, you know, those day-to-day things like that's bipartisan, right? That's a very bipartisan action. You're not like checking people's voter cards or, or their credentials as they're coming up for help. Um, you're just, you're giving gifts literally. And, and so that's where I think, you know, um, it's, it's work that everybody should be doing. It should be bipartisan, right? Like Planned Parenthood should be giving out diapers to women who need them, who have babies, right? They're not, that's their choice. But you know, the more that people experience that kind of gift in their community, I think the easier it probably becomes to, not think of this in like a political box, right? Yeah. And I think I would say, you know, we, one of our important projects in our organization is our Louisiana Black Advocates for Life initiative. Mm-hmm. And that's our um, educational mission that's led by a couple of our key leaders, uh, Dr. Kathy Allen and Pastor Jonathan Burton, to really change the narrative in the black community and hopefully change the statistics where, the, you know, in Louisiana, 
the majority of abortions are in the black community, even though the black community is making it up only 30 percent of the state. You know, so uh, and in that community, you know, it's been uh, one of our hardest things has been to move past that political dynamic, which we can't avoid a political dynamic in the pro-life movement. I mean, you know, we're working to uh, politically bring an end to abortion, right? And it's got to be done through the political. You can't do it otherwise, right? Now, we can work through the top or the bottom up to do that as well. Uh, but, you know, trying to put that emphasis on being bipartisan and trying to take it out of the political box and tell people that it starts, you know, with a moral question, the politics should be derived from that moral and ethical question. Yeah, answering that question of who do we want to be as a people. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, Ben, a hobby horse of mine, I wrote about this way back in, in 2019. I wrote a piece <laughs> called uh, called Are Democrats Tired of Winning? And it was a sort of a case study looking at John Bell Edwards, right, your governor and his reelection campaign, and the amazing success that he had in Louisiana as a Democrat in a state that is Republican. And in a state that, you know, the President Trump won by dozens of points, you have Governor Edwards winning re-election by an impressive margin, outperforming candidate Hillary Clinton by like literally like 40 points, you know, and hundreds of thousands of votes, if you were to look at it like that. And they both, they're from the same party. I bet you, I bet you on paper, they have a lot of agreements. And the big contrast, at least how he portrays himself publicly is that Governor Edwards was proudly and visibly pro-life. And at the same time that Governor Edwards is winning this amazing re-election, you're having the National Party, his own party, saying that people like him shouldn't exist on the national stage. To where, in, in my opinion, a rational political operative would say, run this man for president or have him lead the deep stakes. <laughs> They're more or less saying to, to, for him to pack his bags. And so I guess, you know, if, if we can't always win over our uh, friends of the other side on sort of the basis of what abortion is and why it's wrong, I, it seems to me at least people in Louisiana understand that you if, that the political reality, that you have pro-life people, and so the candidates you have to run need to be pro-life, even in democratic areas, right? That's right, and I would say that it, really John Bell's success – while there have been a lot of other things surrounding it, uh, you know, has it, it should be a lesson that there are a lot of pro-life Democrats. Democrats for Life of America talks about their polling data that shows this overwhelming percentage of uh, Democrats who are pro-life and who are frustrated uh, in that situation. So, you know, I certainly don't it have to be a test. It'd be interesting to run some Democratic pro-life governors in some other states and see how. It, uh, how it would go down uh, and, and if it if they would succeed, you know, again, we have to we got to be careful in the, that process that, you know, our interest as a movement is electing a pro-life person who we know is going to do the action. Right. Um, oftentimes people go down when they're candidates, they do like a checkbox. OK, he stands for this. He stands for this or she stands for this. OK, he's, he or she is pro-life or, you know. You know, we have to make sure that we look deeper into it to make sure that when they say they're pro-life, and I'm not saying any particular candidate, but we just need to be careful that we make sure that the candidates are going to do what they say they're going to do. And when there are other uh, people running, it's just something to keep in mind as we have this conversation. You know, it can't just be a label that people wear. And that goes on the Republican side as well. You know, it can't just be a label that's put on. It's got to mean that we're going to take the action to do it. So. I certainly hope the Democratic Party would see the value of this. At the same time, they can't try to be both and, you know, and that is also the danger of pushing too hard in the Democratic Party is that somehow they try to uh, t- to play both sides of the aisle at the same time. And that's where it could be dangerous on what we actually need to get it done. I think it was telling, you know, when we saw uh, Dan Lipinski's defeat, you know, first how gracious he was about it. But I think one of the things that was amazing to me was it seemed like there was really just sort of like a collective confusion from members of his own party, extreme members, um, you know, on the on the pro-choice, pro-abortion side, when, you know, they said essentially to Lipinski over the course of many years, 
look, you can kind of keep your seat and have your political dynasty. All you have to do is like just compromise on this one issue. And when his response was, well, I appreciate it, but I, I can't compromise on it because it's, it's a matter of, of moral prudence for me. There's, there's no way to compromise on a fundamental human rights issue. The response collectively was kind of like this confusion as to like, but I don't understand. We're offering you power. Like you can keep your thing. And so I think that's a, a kind of a, an example for, for all of us in politics, whether in elected office or not, of, yeah, it's like before we talk about any kind of labels or where we're coming from or, or what we're trying to do, let's first figure out, like, what are our baseline principles? What are the things that, that animate us that we think that the country should be about, that we think our state or local community should be about? And it's so encouraging, I think, on an educational level, on a practical level. You know, in saying there's something like 3,000 pregnancy resource centers in America, there are about 3,000 counties in America. So it's like, you know, we often point out that it's like there's three times as many pregnancy resource centers, pro-life clinics, as there are uh, abortion businesses. Right. That's, that's great. But it's like, truly, there, there are options in every community. That's a huge, huge victory. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what the pro-life movement should really be about. Yeah, I just uh, I hope people realize more and more that the pro-life movement, uh, the majority of what we do is helping people. You know, I mean, you could also make the argument that sometimes so much of our work goes into the pregnancy center world that, you know, we got we can't forget or miss the important educational and legislative and political aspects of what we do. But sometimes that gets the. Uh, perspective, but I think it's important for people around this country to continue to to try to push out and show people the value of what we're doing to help people and to make a difference in individual lives. Mm -hmm. And that's ultimately what drew me into Louisiana Right to Life. You know, whenever I entered as a high school student and I went to this weekend camp, the weekend camp, you know, it starts with understanding abortion. It moves into how do you have compassionate conversations and logical conversations about abortion, then into um, looking at pregnancy centers and saying, okay, well, now you know about this. What can you do about it on that very practical level? Then how do you unite that on your campus, you know, with activism on both of those, you know, like those equally, that education and the resources at the same time. And then we end with hearing, you know, from women who've had experiences. And sometimes over those weekends, you know, I, I went to, I think, the governor's mansion during my time. I'm very proud that at Louisiana Right to Life, we unite all of those important aspects and treat them all with, with equal importance, with the limited, you know, resources, with what we can do. Um, but we're definitely showing the nation this is what you have to do to really change the hearts and minds of our culture as a whole. There's no doubt, Louisiana Right to Life, you guys are among the leaders in the nation uh, on the state level and on the local level. How can folks find your work, your website, your social media? We are uh, prolifelouisiana.org. Um, we have a Facebook and an Instagram. Um, we've been pretty proud of our social media lately during the pandemic. It's nice. fantastic. It's fantastic. <laughs> and uh, our, our handle is at LA yeah. Right to Life. At LA Right to Life. Noah's so waiting for that TikTok account. Are there any tricks, Ben uh, or Alex, that you guys learned in grade school for how to spell Louisiana? Are there anything to like, 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 like children <laughs> learn of little tricks to remember? Well, I, you're going to have to defer to Alex. I'm actually not from Louisiana, but. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, I don't. I don't even know. I think I just made it a jingle in my head. I don't even know if I could sing it out loud. Okay, yeah. I'm gonna ask. All right. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you know, it, it, in <laughs> Missouri, I all, to make it a jingle. <laughs> all, all the key, Missouri borders the most states of any state, so we learn. All, we, you learn all the border states via a little song, but uh, that's yeah. really adorable. Uh, yeah. I, you know I what, Tom? It is adorable. Yeah. Growing up learning how to spell Mississippi more than Louisiana. M I S S I S. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Definitely the opposite of like Utah, but uh, That's right. both great states. Okay. It's, Tom grew up in Philly, and all they learned how to spell was cheesesteak. <laughs> oh my God. Crawfish isn't very far beyond that here. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, Ben, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Something we do every episode is our shot of gratitude. We just share something that we are grateful for. So I'll start us off here. I'm just tremendously grateful uh, to continue to follow this work that you're doing. Um, but particularly as we go into the season here, it's uh, it's good. We're looking forward to the Supreme Court handing out a decision in this really important case. Uh, and we're also looking forward to hopefully the end of this pandemic. So two good things coming up, hopefully. Ben, how about you? What's something you're grateful for? Yeah, well, I would say since since we kind of brought up really, I'm really grateful to those people that started the pro-life movement when uh, they didn't know what they were getting into. They didn't know the prospects for success. You know, it's you know, it's not like there was a whole pro-life movement for people to watch you doing this and congratulate you and shake your hand. You know, um, you know, they just did it because it was the right thing to do. You know, and uh, and. Look where it's led us, you know, to uh, like countries like Europe. It seems like there's there's no fight, you know. So I'm really grateful for those people that have given so much and never really counted the cost. That's awesome. How about you, Alex? Kind of outside of the pro-life movement, I um, we mentioned this before. I mean, with the stay-at-home orders and everything, I mean, it's been tragic what's been happening. But I am definitely grateful for the entire country having the opportunity to um, kind of strip away, you know, all the busyness and look at what matters. Um, and then to step in for those who are in crisis during this time, it's been really inspiring to see people do that. And I'm, and I'm grateful that for the people on our team who that saw a way to do that as well. And it's brought me back to the core of, of what we do. That's beautiful. Noah, how about you? Listen, you guys are you guys are thankful and grateful for some terrific things. Uh, I'm really grateful that finally the county I live in, Montgomery County, Maryland, which is right on the border between D.C. and Maryland, is finally lifting their stay at home order uh, at the end of uh, end of this week. And I think it's I think it's the right call. I think that, you know, there's been a lot of focus on the loss of life. Right. A hundred thousand people as of us talking now have died from this horrible disease. Uh, but, you know, thousands of people have lost their businesses and lost things that they've worked their entire life for. Maybe their parents and grandparents also worked their entire life for. And so I'm excited to to sort of start this recovery. And I'm also I'm also happy that I, you know, through this time, I think a lot of people have learned that uh, the teleworking thing is possible, if not always uh, preferable. And so I. <laughs> I hope that the that you know that businesses and organizations across the country are charitable and wise and let the people who do have high risk uh, stay you know stay home for a longer period as we try to get everything working again. Mm-hmm. Although we're looking forward to seeing Ben and Alex in person again real soon. Yes. Well, Ben, Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Thank you both. All right. If you enjoyed today's show, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen. Rate the show and leave a review. Message a friend. Let them know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, just email us at life at AUL.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.